are listening to Teacher Talk It, supporting teachers, parents and students worldwide. www.teachertalkit.co.uk Like, subscribe and follow to stay in the know. But as teachers, we tend to do that. We put them together. You say, John, Pete, Mary, Rose, you're a team. This is your task. And in three weeks, you'll be graded on it. Yes, not very helpful. It's not very helpful. You put them in immediately in, in a, in a semi-high-stakes situation in which they can't make any mistakes. And what it ends up is they screw up and screw around for two and a half weeks. And the last two days before it, one person decides, yeah, if it's going to be a group goal and a group grade, I better get my ass on working on this so that I don't suffer from it. That's not collaboration. We help teachers thrive and survive with classroom ideas, cutting-edge school resources, and research-informed teacher training materials. You will also hear discussions on the policy, guidance, and research-based publications. This week, listen to Ross McGill, founder of Teacher Toolkit, interview Dr. Paul Kirshner, international speaker and researcher, professor of educational psychology at the Open University of the Netherlands, and guest professor at Thomas More University of Applied Science in Belgium. In today's podcast, some of the things we'll be discussing are why cognitive load theory and Rosenshine's principles are so popular, the dangers of simplifying and mistranslating research, and how teachers can help students improve their ability to learn collaboratively. Hello everyone, this is Ross at Teacher Talk, the most influential blog on education in the UK. Today, I am delighted to be joined by educational psychologist, Paul Kirshner. Paul, good morning, how are you? Uh, Ross, good afternoon, doing okay. It's. Uh, I wish the sun was shining instead of that it was raining, but for the rest, everything's okay. Great, well, um, thank you for your precious time. Um, I know you're a very uh, busy man. Uh, I was just having a look through your uh, Google Scholar profile, and I don't think I've seen a profile that is uh, so enormous with all the incredible work that you have done. Um, Could I just get you to just give us a little synopsis of your career history to date, Paul, please? Okay. Um, uh, How many hours do you have? No, (laughs) seriously. Um, Uh, I was born in uh, the United States, in New York, and uh, in New York, um, I went to uh, two different universities and got a bachelorate, eventually a bachelorate in psychology and credentials for teaching uh, maths Mm -hmm. and um, sciences, the natural sciences. Um, I did that for a very short time and realized that the last thing I wanted to do was be a teacher. So I left the United States to just, as I said in that time, to get my head together. I was a hippie. Um, I'm now bald, like you. Yes. But I had down hair past my shoulders <laughs> at that point in time. I had curly hair. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I had straight, straight hair, um, kind of like way pa- a bit past my shoulders. And um, um, was, was, mm-hmm. was a, a carpenter, mm-hmm. was a uh, chef in a restaurant. Right. And um, met the person, a woman who changed my life, who at a certain point in time said, why don't you go back to school? And so I did that and got my master's in educational psychology, mm-hmm. started studying uh, an area that was called at that point in time, uh, text characteristics and learning processes. Right. And 
that was how you can do things to texts, textual material, um, to make it uh, easier to um, study from, better to learn. Mm -hmm. And as they say, the rest is history. Uh, I've been doing that since about 1978, mm. uh, after receiving my master's and working at the at a, a what would you call it, an educational publishing house, mm -hmm. and then the Open University making courses. I um, went to, um, as I said, I went to the Open University. Um, I got my PhD, mm -hmm. and you know, when you start doing your PhD and things like that, you start to do research. Yes. And the rest it's is history, just yeah. like lots of publications and books. Yeah, and enormous. Journal now, articles and things like that. On the note of books, I'm a big fan. You and what Carl have done recently, Jim uh, Heal. I've got both of them to hand here. I love these books because... Thank you. You bring, as you'll know, education researchers are increasing in popularity for teachers. Uh, but you've 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 tackled some of the biggest papers in nice bite-sized summaries with little graphics and some QR codes for some people that don't know uh, how learning happens and how teaching happens. I'd be surprised people that don't. Uh, but just in case, could you give us a little overview as to how the books came to be and why you put them together? Um, uh, my usual answer to that was frustration. <clears throat> Um, it, it, it's, it's the kind of book that I wish I would have had when I uh, was uh, training to become a teacher mm -hmm. because um, I didn't learn how learning happens and how teaching happens. Um, uh, at a certain point, I was in my career, I was guiding PhD students and um, giving uh, lectures to teachers and primarily with dealing with the PhD students, they would want to do a piece of research, and I'd say to them something like, oh, you want to work on prompting, um, um, why don't you just follow up the work of uh, Ernst Rothkopf about adjunct questions and mathemogenic activities, and they'd look at me as if they saw water burning or I, I was parting the Red Sea, I have no <laughs> idea. and. Um, I was constantly confronted with students who missed what I considered the basis mm -hmm. of educational psychology and cognitive psychology, although they had gotten their master's in psychology, mm -hmm. were apparently majoring in educational or cognitive psychology in order to do their PhD research with me, but um, missed the basis that I thought that they should have had. So... Um, it was the frustration with that. That was number one. Number two, I was working as a guest professor, visiting professor in Olu, Finland. Mm -hmm. And um, at a certain point, uh, the person I was working with who brought me there, uh, Sana Yarvele, she said to me, Paul, uh, could you give me a list of 10 articles that everyone in our department should have read or should read, mm -hmm. uh, to do their job properly. And I sat down, it was like Christmas time, and I, I started making a list, and that list, I couldn't stop at 10. It got longer and longer. Ended up being a blog in which I uh, uh, presented something like 40 yes. seminal articles. 
and with, you know, like, how do you access the articles, and this is the abstract of it. Mm -hmm. And um, having done that, um, I thought at a certain point in time, hey, why don't I write a book that I wish I would have had, and the thing book that I wish all of my PhD students and the teachers that I give lectures to had read mm -hmm. so that they, you know, like get off to a running start and understand how learning happens and how teaching happens. You know, that weren't taught when this do that, but we're taught what can you do based upon what, why should you do it, when should you do it, with whom should you do it, um, so that they could not just write pills. You don't want a doctor that just prescribes pills, mm -hmm. but you want a, a doctor who has knowledge of anatomy and physiology and biology and pathology so that they can listen to you and make a good diagnosis and prescribe the course of action, not the pill, but the course of action. And after they've done that, can evaluate how did it go, can reflect upon it. Now, that's what I wanted to do, and that's what I hope yeah. this book does. No, you absolutely have done it. And, um, you know, as you talk, I think, right, I could talk to you all day about this. And I'm reminded of my own journey in teaching where much of it was guesswork, much of it was imparted wisdom, but nothing rigorously written down for me to digest and reflect on on my own in my own time. And I guess, you know, the, the birth of social media the last 20 years or so has given us all a place to blog like yourself, myself included, to share. I know you're a big fan of Research Ed and all the different conferences that you're attending that I see you uh, sharing and spreading the messages. What I'm really interested in is that that kind of, as you described, that kind of doctoral approach to teaching that, you know, how, why, when, and all those different conditions. If I return to the How Learning Happens book, two of the most popular topics you'll know that have spread all across education Twitter, you'll know, is cognitive load theory and Barrett Rosenshine's research. Now, there might be one or two listeners not familiar with that, but we won't necessarily go over what they are. But can I ask you, Paul, why do you think, with your academic wisdom, why these two particular papers have become very popular and in danger of turning into a, a misconception or a fad, perhaps? Um, what are your thoughts on these two pieces of work? Um, with respect to cognitive load theory, I think the simplest answer to that question uh, might be it uh, uh, gives you an understanding of um, what happens in your head when you're trying to learn something? Mm -hmm. What are the constraints of your cognitive architecture? Uh, that's short. That's 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 sensory memory, uh, working memory, uh, long-term memory, things like that, um, and um, uh, gives you principles, guiding principles, so that you can create instruction that. Um, doesn't exceed the limits of your cognitive architecture, of your, your working memory. Mm -hmm. And very simple things that, 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 if you think about it, are, you know, like, in, in, in incredibly, yeah, they speak for themselves. Like, um, if you are making use of an illustration and you have the choice between uh, putting a legend under it or just putting it in the illustration, uh, cognitive load theory says, 
put it in the illustration because just going back and forth and back and forth adds load to your study process, load that isn't necessary, mm -hmm. that, that you could avoid if you just put in that, 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 that diagram of the Krebs cycle yeah, of uh, ATP, ADP, I have no idea if people understand that, but uh, how you get energy, how the, how the cell makes, its, makes energy. If you put it in the cycle instead of underneath it or next to it, it just makes the understanding of it that much more uh, effective and efficient. Mm -hmm. Those types of things, things to say, the way you teach a novice should be different than the way you teach an expert. And, and, and they're all kind of like, when you think about it, it's common sense, but all of a sudden, as a teacher, you understand why that's the case, and it, it helps you um, uh, to avoid the pitfalls mm -hmm. of overloading your working memory. Mm -hmm. And it's actually formed the basis of things like the cognitive theory of multimedia learning from Rich Mayer, um, that's primarily based upon cognitive load theory, dual coding theory from Alan Pavio, mm -hmm. and information processing theory uh, from Baddeley and Hitch. Now, those are the things I discuss also in the book. So if you really want to understand what Rich is saying about the cognitive theory of multimedia learning, you need to know what those yes, underlying absolutely. theories entail, and that's in the book, those three yeah, things. Yeah, I mean, I, so that's I discovered respect those... To cognitive load theory. Yeah, uh, the, the phrase dual coding was new to me. I, I mean, I probably discovered it seven or eight years ago, and it became that eureka moment uh, how I had maybe experimented with, you know, I'm a design and technology teacher, so lots of graphics, lots of images, that type of way of working in the classroom. It gave me something robust to, to hold on to that refined the way that I taught. Yep. The cognitive load theory, again, was, you know, that information, that research allowed me to then reflect on my practice and think, Ah, go slower. Consider working memory, effective instruction, and it's a great uh, it's a great piece of research. And I would I'd encourage most teachers who are listening to the podcast, if you're not familiar with it, to to get hold of that uh, research. Um, Paul on Rosenshine, what are your thoughts on Barrett Rosenshine's piece of work? Now he's the first. Um, he was the first researcher, possibly. I mean, I'm not going to. Uh, I'm not going to um, uh, stick my hand into a fire and say this is this is the the the, the Lord's truth. Yes, but he was kind of like the first. Do you mean the first um, classroom researcher? You could call it that, but he was the first person that uh, combined uh, research on effective teaching on the one hand with research on cognitive psychology and educational psychology on the other side. He looked at both of those things and. He put them together in what was originally um, uh, 17 uh, principles, mm -hmm. you could call it, mm -hmm. of explicit instruction. Um, you'll notice I call it explicit instruction and not direct instruction. Yes. Because I don't things. want to you know, um, uh, mix it up with um, uh, another type of thing yes. that's called direct, uh, instruction, uh, yeah. Yeah, direct instruction. He called it also himself explicit instruction. And he combined that, and he synthesized uh, a set of, also, of principles which were completely in line with, on the one hand, educational psychology, and on the other hand, effective teaching practices. Kind of like, um, I'll, I'll go through a few of them, not, not very much, and I won't do it very long, but he starts off with, um, his, his first principle is um, review um, what the learner has already learned. 
Yeah? That doesn't mean every lesson has to start with a review, but that's his first principle. And that's a normal thing you might do at the beginning of a lesson. Okay? Um, but if you go back to the research and you look at what David Oshabel said about the most important factor in learning new things is what you already know, it's completely in line with that idea. Because if you want to teach someone something new, you have to know and understand what they already know and build upon that. And if they don't know it, you have to help create a framework so that they can do it. So, number one, yeah. Number two, do things in small steps. Yeah, yeah. Uh, cognitive load theory. Um, don't overload working uh, memory. Um, uh, model the behavior that you want. Okay, that's from a number of different th things, but it's kind of like, no, don't tell them what to do, but let them understand why they should be doing it by watching you do it and explaining what you're doing. Yeah, so there's modeling theory. So all, all, all of these, all of these, all of these types of of, of things, um, uh, scaffolding. Yeah. yeah, I'm a not inductor here on the video. Um, I'm trying not to. Um, I'm I'm trying to stay calm and not agree here. But um, it's it's a brilliant piece of research, isn't it, Paul? Yeah, it's 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 the most beautiful one of the most beautiful pieces of uh, 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 desk research, looking at all of the research on effective teaching yeah. that was available at that time and all of the research on cognitive or educational psychology that was available and synthesizing that into first 17 and then 10. He did that for the American Federation of Teachers, the yes. American educator. 10 simple, understandable principles that should never, never be used as a checklist. Yes, Every I lesson I do, I have to do this, but it's are there things you, sh you need to think about as a teacher if you want to make effective, efficient, and enjoyable learning experiences mm -hmm. for your students? Now, Paul, I was going to ask you that question, you know, the checklist one. What, what are the dangers and mutations you might have observed yourself in conversations, teacher training, or on Twitter, the things that you might have seen where a great piece of research has been translated and it starts to evolve into something oh, that's... Uh, not in t not in desirable or intended. Well, the, the first two things we talked about, cognitive load theory, it's kind of like people have translated into that. The goal of cognitive load theory or your instruction, according to cognitive load theory, is to minimize cognitive load. I mean, that, that, that's completely absurd. You want to not exceed the limits of what a, a person can do, but you don't want to make it so easy that they're not learning. Yes. So you want Managing. cognitive load. You want them to think about it. Yes. But you want to give, have your instruction be such that they can, that, that, that your students can learn more deeply, that they have the room to learn more deeply by choosing an instructional approach that doesn't add unnecessary load uh, to their working memory. That's the wrong way to do it if you think in terms of, oh, our goal is to minimize, no, cognitive load. No, it's to optimize mm -hmm. the cognitive, the load, the mental effort. About knowing of the how student. to manage it more yeah? effectively. And, 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 and you see it in, in, in almost all of the um, translations of research is that somebody um, presents it in a way that they think will make it simpler, but actually perverts the original ideas. Mm -hmm. And 
Uh, oh, things like mindset is a, is is a good example of that. Or um, uh, um, uh, learning styles, brain gym. Learning. Oh well, no, we're not talking about that. Those are myths. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But um, uh, it, it's kind of like they're all the, the the danger, and you see that with Barack Rosenshine's work also. Yes. People make a checklist of it. It looks good. It sounds like a checklist. Mm-hmm. It is. You know. It begins with check for understanding, small steps, and it goes through it to, at the end, daily, weekly, monthly reviews, it sounds like, okay, this is a blueprint for how I should make all of my instruction, but it's not that. It, it's kind of like explicit instruction, if you look at it well, mm-hmm. and when I give um, uh, uh, presentations about it, I, I, I do it through an example, I'm not gonna do it here, but all of a sudden they say, oh, that explicit instruction, that's incredibly interactive. You're constantly asking questions, giving feedback, um, uh, letting the student do the things that that they should be doing. Let them practice, mm-hmm. uh, guiding them through it. Um, it it's, it's an incredibly interactive thing. And I say, yes, that's what it is. Because if you if you bring it back to ten principles that you constantly have to do in everything, it becomes an incredibly boring, mm-hmm. you know, way of, of teaching and learning. And it's as bad as any other. Yeah, so 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 you constantly get that people simplify. So um, things. A, a, a final question then, Paul. What would be your advice for school leaders who have been allured by cognitive load theory, uh, enamoured by Rosenshine's research, want to improve classroom practice across the entire organisation, have veered into a kind of set of principles, a checklist or a lesson observation checklist? What recommendations would you give them that, yes, we want consistency in classrooms, yes, we want these principles, but how can we avoid them moving into a checklist approach? Um, getting your teachers to understand what it's about. So the first thing you should do is hire me to um, uh, uh, give uh, a presentation yes. about it, to put them in the, in, in the proper Set frame. The I won't yeah. use the word mindset, but hire me to, to do that. That's the simplest. Okay. And the second is then take a, a book like How Learning Happens, mm-hmm. okay? It's uh, got 19, uh, 29 uh, chapters on uh, the greats, the giants in the field, and one which the last one is is on um, the 10 deadly sins. Okay. In, in a period of a year, um, have your teachers work together in, 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 in groups, like have the, the math section or the science section, mm-hmm. or if you're in elementary school, uh, have all the teachers in the in, in the lower classes and other teachers in the in in the upper classes go through the book chapter by chapter have one person um, read it very thoroughly have the other people just read it let's call it diagonally mm-hmm. and every week week and a half maybe two weeks um, conversation have this group come together have the teacher who um, read it thoroughly give a presentation on it for 10, 15 minutes, no longer. Yeah, share the right. Get down to the gist. Yeah. Um, uh, the next 15 minutes is kind of like discuss with each other what it means and what the implications are. Mm-hmm. And in the last 30 minutes of this one hour long Training uh, uh, session, set up, um, CPD, call it, yeah, session, yeah. but in school, CPD. You don't have to hire anyone else then. Nobody has to come to the school after I've been there and explained, given them this this, this framework. Um, have them decide for themselves, now how are we going to apply it? And 
have them write that down as it is at the end of the 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 this the 29 sessions mm -hmm. they have for themselves a blueprint of how are we going to make use of cognitive load theory how are we going to make use of how of information how are we going to make mm -hmm. use of uh, um, a dual coding theory? How are we going to make use of elaboration theory Some in our? How are we going to combine and, them? And you have this incredible blueprint for the school. And Paul, on your travels, have you seen schools do that model particularly There are well? some schools beginning with that. Yeah, great. Yeah? They use it as the basis for CPD and have it every... And then the next year, you know, like, do how... Teaching happens yes. in, in the same way. And, and the, the, the good thing about that is you get everybody on the, on, on the same page, including the head of the school, the headmaster and the headmistress. Mm -hmm. That's number one. But number two, uh, of course, when one person leaves, because, I mean, people retire yeah. or go to other places, you have this group of people who are now a community of knowledge mm -hmm. that can work with the new teacher, can give them this book of this is how we make use of what we know from educational psychology mm -hmm. and cognitive psychology and effective teaching practices. And this is the way we do it. So you give them, when they come in, they get this kind of handbook of what are we doing in this, this, this school? Yeah. How are we teaching? And why yeah. are we teaching in this way? What better way to pave the way no, for a new teacher, then do it that way. Uh, some some words of wisdom there. I guess, you know, come to a school, there's your hymn sheet, uh, let's unpick it. So uh, some good tips there. Now, Paul, I, I want to come back to your Google Scholar profile. So before we met, I selected two or three articles that caught my eye, and I'd just like to unpick them just as maybe some new pieces of research that people might find of interest also. So the first one is your paper published in 2017, 10 Steps, to complex learning, a systematic approach to four-component instructional design. Um, could you give us a little brief overview of what this research paper sought to uh, study? Well, what it does is it gives you a blueprint for designing instruction. Um, it's based upon whole tasks. It's based upon uh, uh, enough support and guidance. <clears throat> It's based upon elaboration theory and cognitive load theory, elaboration theory in choose the epitome. Choose the, 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 the simple example of a whole task that you can think of. Yeah? So if you're, if you're, doing a, mm -hmm. uh, if you're trying to teach your students how to do a literature, literature search, what's now the simplest but meaningful whole task that's in a simple small database with a very concrete question um, that you give them where you don't need booleans or, or, or whatever and have them with support and guidance um, do the carry out that task and you first give them mm -hmm. support and guidance then you <clears throat> scaffold you, you you remove some of the support and guidance until they can do it without any support and guidance at all at that point in time you increase the complexity we're going back to small steps you increase the complexity mm -hmm. so you may be make either the uh, uh, search task, the, the question, a little bit more diffuse, so it's not that clear cut, mm -hmm. or you put it in a larger, make use of a larger database, where you have to make use of Booleans and things like that, uh, or... or sure. Is this similar to the cognitive apprenticeship research? It's related in a certain way, but it gives a way related. to... Okay. To um, design the apprenticeship. Yeah? It's an instructional sure. design theory. 
It's not a, a learning theory. It's an instructional design. So it tells you how to design your materials so that you can mm -hmm. constantly make use of meaningful whole tasks, but not in a discovery way, in a very guided, scaffolded way mm -hmm. that doesn't exceed the limits of your working memory. Sure. Now, I know people will need to read the research or even buy the book, but can you give us an insight into the 10 steps? Oh, that no. That, 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 that's, that's, I, I could get the book. I'd say, go get 10 steps to complex learning. Um, this is supposed to be a 30 to 45 minute podcast. So I'd say, uh, take, take a look at it. Uh, uh, it's got a very clear, I think it's available to everyone. Yeah. And if you, and if and if and if you well, the book, but if you look at at the article that you were talking about, there's a very clear diagram in it that explains it within the diagram. It makes use of cognitive load theory, yeah. It's spatial contiguity, and it gives you a good idea of what the ten are and how they fit into the four components. Okay, lovely. Thank you, Paul. Uh, I'll make sure we so uh, reference that on the podcast. Please uh, do put it on to. the website. Um, Right, we've got time for just one more article then. I want to just talk about the other one you published recently, 2021, Metacognition in Collaborative Learning. Uh, I guess we throw in the phrase, you know, a lot of us are moving on to the kind of thinking about thinking metacognition. There's lots of uh, misnomers and myths about group work and effective group work and, and, and or not. Could you uh, give us a synopsis of this research paper? Well, I think the most important thing to think about when you're doing with collaborative learning is um, and that's the thing that teachers forget very often or don't know how to do is that if you want students to carry out a task with each other mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, the balance sheet the, the profits of working together have to exceed the costs of working together and if you work together if you try to work together uh, on a on, on a task that means you have uh, uh, cooperate uh, you have coordination and communication costs. Uh, yes. I have to if I'm working with you, Ross. We have to communicate with each other to make sure that you don't do the things I've done. I don't do the things that you do, and we have to coordinate our actions because certain things have to happen before other things happen. Yeah? Yes. Now those are are, are costs. If your task isn't complex enough, that the the benefits of working together um, don't exceed the costs of working together. People okay. won't work together. Yeah. Yes. So that's that's like the whole idea behind um, uh, successful collaborative learning. But teachers often don't know that. The second thing is the, the metacognitive. You have to constantly to coordinate and collaborate. You have to know where you are. You have to know what you know. You have to know what you don't know. You have to know about. Uh, uh, you, you have to. You have to judge your your, your own learning and, and and the work of the team. And if you don't do that, you won't have a successful team. So it's it's. And a second aspect of that, I would say, is the fact that people. The first is, as I said, that the task isn't complex enough. Uh, 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 to make it worthwhile, so you have to do things like you have to send five email e e to emails to each other or whatever, you know that type of thing. The, this is the first. Um, uh, uh, the, the 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 second aspect of this is that, and that's very very metacognitive, 
is that people, teachers put students in a group and from the get-go expect them to uh, operate as a yeah. team. But teams have to be formed. We, we know the things that storming, uh, 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 forming, norming, performing, uh, that the, the idea, and then adjourning. Um, yes. we, it, every team has to learn to work together. I have to know when I have to cover your back. I have to understand that you're not loafing here at the moment, but your way of working is different from mine, so maybe I have to fill in the gaps of yours because you only fill in the gaps of mine and those types of things. That means we have to understand each other and learn and work with each other. So you need a period in which that group goes through the, the, the stages, the phases of becoming a team. The, if you the, the expect challenge a, you had with writing a book with other people. The yeah, team tell me about back. it. Doing that with, <laughs> with, 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 with Carl and with Jim. Uh, it took quite a while to uh, uh, finally perform because our ways of working are completely different. One of us, me, is very, very quick and um, worries about everything and others say, well, it'll go okay sure. and, 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 and be calm. So, and Paul, you have Paul to... can I ask the, the message for the teachers from this research is to maybe teach students the kind of metacognitive skills before assigning them? You can't teach them. You can, you can, you can... Uh, the fact that you use the word skill means that you... Students don't learn a skill, they acquire a skill. You have to um, teach them certain things about working yes. together. Yes. Yeah. Uh, how do you approach someone that you think is loafing or, 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 or something like that? But it's a skill mm -hmm. you need to acquire. So you have to, uh, after giving them the basis that they need in order to try to start carrying out the skill, you have to give them the opportunity to practice it. And it's the same with any skill. You have mm -hmm. to teach students how to write a good synopsis. What are the main aspects of that? But then give them the opportunity to practice and practice and practice it with the feedback that they need so that they finally acquire the skill. It's not a procedure that you can carry out. So you can't mm -hmm. teach someone how to be metacognitive, you can teach them, you can give them the fundamental knowledge of what they could or should be doing mm -hmm. metacognitively, but you have to allow them the chance to practice, to, to I, I would say to... So I guess my question was framed poorly then. How, how would a teacher help students acquire those that metacognition in that collaborative learning, any recommendations? Um, uh, give them a good basis of what it means to work with each other. Um, how do you uh, solve problems with e that, that you have with each other? Mm -hmm. um, how do you uh, uh, coordinate and communicate in the, in the, in the best way? Mm -hmm. uh, those types of things. So you give them the fundamentals of it mm -hmm. and then have them start working before they have to work together in a team, um, put them in a pressure cooker and have them um, do it in a non-threatening situation. Um, mm -hmm. Think of what you do in the, in, 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 in the armed services or uh, fire in, 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 for, for um, firemen or policemen. 
what they do is they're not just put to, put put on a on a fire truck together or thrown into a situation. They're put yeah. into simulated situations in which they can make mistakes. They're allowed to make mistakes so that they can acquire that. Once you put them in the situation that mm -hmm. what they're doing is also what they're getting a grade on, yeah, it's like mm -hmm. putting a group of soldiers together and sending them to Afghanistan without having given them the opportunity to learn to work together as a fighting team. Mm -hmm. Now, no army, except for possibly at this moment the Russian army, um, or a police force, or fire brigade, or whatever, would do that. But as teachers, we tend to do that. We put them together. You say, John, Pete, Mary, Rose, yes. you're a team. This is your task. And in three weeks, you'll be graded on it. Yes, not very helpful. It's, it's not very helpful. You put them in, immediately in, in a, in a semi-high-stakes situation in which then they can't make any mistakes. And what it ends up is they screw up and screw around for two and a half weeks. And the last two days before it, one person decides... Yeah, if it's going to be a group goal and a group grade, I better get my ass on working on this so that I don't suffer from it. That's not collaboration. And then the teacher's upset why they got poor grades. Right, so. yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm going to wrap things up, Paul, because uh, you're a busy man and we could talk all day about your fascinating uh, publications and uh, education history. I, I finished my podcast off with lots of quick fire questions. I've written Let's some do it. notes as, as we talk. Um, so um, I'll start off with your MA Ed site. Where can people go to find out more about text characteristics and learning processes? What would be your kind of number one thing to, to learn a bit about that? Okay, uh, what, uh, I, the best way to, to do that is uh, uh, read my work because it's constantly about that. All right, great. What project are you working on? What's on your desk today? Um, uh, writing a second edition of how learning happens, throwing out a few chapters, adding even more chapters that we missed the first time. Right, fantastic. Okay. Um, if you were Education Secretary of State in England, what would you do? Um, uh, make a standard curriculum for all, and when you've done that, the initial teacher training, uh, uh, do that and uh, so that people don't learn only what they should do, but learn why. Give them the basic knowledge of that. I think England is actually uh, an enlightened country in that respect. Yeah, we're doing a bit better with that today. Very good. And, and a lot of the new teachers I meet are getting that diet now. Um, okay, next question. Um, if I was a teacher moving into a PhD for the first time, what any advice for someone in that kind of area to be successful? Um, know the masters. Learn the masters. The masters. Uh, next question. If this wasn't your dream job and you could have this off-the-wall crazy kind of hippie career or whatever it would be, what, what's that career you never had, Paul? Um, I think two of them. Uh, um, the first one is the career I gave up to go back to school, and that was right. being a cook, being a chef. Okay. And the second one is um, being a career dad. Right, um, not missing uh, all of the things that I missed because I was um, a, a driven academic. So there were certain lots of things that I missed yeah. because of that. Uh, yeah, if it was possible, I would have liked to have been a career okay, dad. that's good to know. Um, and are you, are you the, the key chef in the household? Yes. 
And what what's the kind of specialist dish if I came around? Oh, everything from household? chicken mole to um, uh, a duck in uh, uh, apricot balsamico glaze, or right, things like around. that. <laughs> um, now, if you could find one career achievement that you're most proud of, what would it be? Um, I can't say anything. I think if I had to say one, it's the paper I wrote with uh, John Sweller and Richard Clark in 2006 on uh, why minimal discovery does it Right, work. fantastic. I've not read that, so I need to have a look Read it. Kirshner, Sweller, Clark. It's the basis. I, sh I shall. I shall get back to you as soon as I have. Um, next question, nearly done. Uh, who would you recommend I interview next and why? Um, I would say um, interview Tim Surma. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a, a, a Flemish uh, colleague okay. of mine um, because he's written an incredible book uh, and he deals with really, he's a teacher and a researcher and he's the perfect mm -hmm. combination of the two. So I'd say get in touch with Tim about it. Uh, about, right, you I, know. I, shall, I shall do that. Um, Paul, where can listeners find out more about you, your blogs, your books? Your, your, uh, www.kirshnered.kirshnered, K-I-R-S-C-H-N-E-R, dot N-L. Fantastic. Um, and then my last question, the, the big one, what would you hope to be your legacy? Uh, that I've eliminated the hypes that people latch onto by showing them that if it sounds too good to be true, it probably isn't true. And that they have the knowledge to look at something and say, no, that can't be the case. Actually, that I've created for my grandchildren uh, an educational climate where they can learn effectively, efficiently, and enjoyably. Brilliant. If that was my legacy, I'd say yeah. that would be my well, epitaph. I, that could. That is a fantastic epitaph to think uh, to end on. I think that's a, a, a fantastic accolade, and I, 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 I'll stick my neck out. I think you've achieved that uh, insurmountable many, many times over. Does that mean I can um, now die? Yeah, <laughs> not yet. Not okay, because I'd like to come around for some chicken first. Okay. <laughs> Um, Paul, uh, thank you so much for your time. I honestly could talk all day. Uh, the great Paul Kirshner, check out books, people listening, how learning happens, how teaching happens, available at all the best bookstores. Um, we'll put those links in the, uh, the podcast. Paul, I look forward to actually meeting you in real life. It's been a pleasure to connect with you properly over the last few months, and hopefully we can see each other a conference soon and you never know we might have a project up our sleeves in some shape or okay form. i hope in, so in too. the future we'll see we'll come up with something but i'm going to read that paper uh, and i'll get back to you as and when i can okay uh, paul thank you so much for your time thank you for uh, interviewing me and um, i hope that people listening are made enthusiastic to um uh, teach better fantastic thanks yeah? paul bye-bye Thank you for listening to this podcast. To continue the conversation, head over to www.teachertoolkit.co.uk and our social media channels to access all the links and resources mentioned on today's show. Why not share this with your colleagues and give them the gift of time, reduced workload and increased impact? Until the next time, before you look after your students, look after yourself.